All right, welcome to another edition of Chocolate Podcast, uh, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds, learn about other cultures and what's going on in other parts of the world. Today, I have Garcelle on the podcast. So welcome, Garcelle. Thank you. Uh, should I call you Garcelle or Garcy? Which is better? Um, I like Garcelle better, actually. I know a lot of people like nicknames better, but I actually like my birth name. I say Garcy sometimes to um, shorten it for other people, but I definitely prefer my long name. Yeah, I mean... Garcelle, that's such a fancy name. Like, uh, is your mom French? Uh, what's what's the story behind that? Like, Garcelle. And your last name is Franklin, by the way. So it's like... Yeah, so I've looked into it. Um, there is like... I wish it was like this deep meaning behind it, but my mom just needed another last name, another first name that ended with G. So my brother's name is Gregory. My sister's name is Gabrielle. And now my name is Garcelle. Um, she found my name from the Jamie Foxx show and the character's name was actually Fancy. So... Um, oh, Really? Yeah, and her real name was Garcelle Bouvier. And Wait, she Jamie, Jamie Foxx had his own show, or this was like in Living Color or something? No, this is Jamie Foxx's show. So he definitely had he had his own show in like the late 90s and early 2000s. It still comes on like BET and MTV reruns, I think. But um, <laughs> Like Baby Boy, right? Oh, yes. Okay, that's interesting. GGG, are you going to continue the tradition for your own kids, or are you going to switch to a different alphabet? Um, well, I don't know. Maybe um, my mom's name is Beatrice and then my dad's name is Gregory. So maybe I'll let my husband have it. I don't really want to think about picking three more G names, but I do want to make sure I give my children like a unique name because Nosa is a really unique name too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's funny. I come to the U.S. and everyone keeps saying that. It makes me feel so good because back home, it's not that unique. Like, okay. not, not back home, like back home where I come from, like where I'm from originally. So I'm, I'm from Nigeria, but I'm from southern Nigeria, from Edo State. It's not a popular name in the whole of the country, but in southern Nigeria, the state where I'm from, it's not mm-hmm. that uncommon. I have a cousin named Nosa also. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> understandable. You're like, yeah, like maybe for us. Understandable. Is that the whole name for you, Nosa? Yeah, Nosa. That's it. Uh, so, yeah, we have something. Uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions just to get to know you better and know what you like and kind of like set the tone for the interview. So uh, I'll give you two options. Just pick the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, the one which you most relate to. Is that okay? All right, let's start this. For-profit or non-profit? Um, non-profit. Swimming or hiking? Swimming. Beer or wine? Hmm, neither. Neither, really? Neither. Okay, there's, um, there's a story there, I guess. <laughs> One, two, maybe. three. What? What'd you say? Maybe. I just never had a taste for beer or wine. Um, I tried to get into it. Wait, you live in Colorado. You, you do, right? I know. <laughs> um, it was never my thing. I don't really... Alcohol's never been a really big thing for me. It's funny. It's played a huge role in my life, and it did when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But I've never, like, like, drank the taste of it. I, like... The alcohol that I like is like wine coolers that are like three percent alcohol. Um, it. like it. more my range, maybe margaritas or something if I'm out, but okay. beer and wine is like nasty. Okay, different strokes for different folks. That's uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> Banks or credit unions? Hmm. Banks. One, two, three, or one, three, two. One, two, three. Chips or planes? Ships or what? Ships or planes. Ships. Really? Okay. Not not during the coronavirus, I guess. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, not right now. Well, neither right now. Really, a car right now. But if I had to, like, if I had the chance to, like, yeah. sail the world or fly the world, I would actually rather sail, sail it. I feel like it'd be cool. Okay. Okay. You like going on cruises? Um, I do, but I've only been on one. So I keep saying I'm going to go on another one. I was going to go for my birthday, but Corona. So. Oh, when's your birthday? It's in April, April 17th. On the oh, mine too. Mine is April 10th. So I'm kind of like crossing my fingers. Yeah, I hope, hope we have this uh, resolved before April 10th, but who knows? We're crossing our fingers. I hope yeah. so for both of us. Aries right. <laughs> I guess. Podcasts or books? Oh, that's a really hard one. Do I have to do either or? Because it Yeah, either logic. or. And don't pay me no mind. Don't, don't. don't. <laughs> All right, books, I guess. Okay. North Carolina or South Carolina? South Cat. What? My hometown. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, all right. Nothing before it. 
Pretty interesting getting getting to know a bit about you. So yeah, let's just transition and talk about where you grew up. So obviously you're from the South. Uh, you were born in South Carolina, correct? I was. I was born in um, I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, but we stayed in Blythewood, South Carolina. Blythe Carolina, Blythewood, South Carolina is an extremely small town. I don't think the population can be over ten thousand people. Um, 10,000 people. Why are all towns in South Carolina small? Like, I listen to Charlemagne a lot, and I think he's from, he's from, from Monk's, Monk's Corner, and he always says the population is like 8,000 or something. Like, oh, wow. Okay, so maybe we're close. Um, maybe so, but yeah, a lot of towns in South Carolina. It's a very rural place, um, so I'm right. So I'm from Blythewood, which is like a town, and then the city of Columbia is right next to it. So okay. really, like, when we needed stuff, we usually be through the city of Columbia, but I went to, like, Blythewood schools. But all of our Blythewood schools were through the city of Columbia, so. Okay. It's kind of, like, back and forth. Um, yeah, and Blythewood was very rural. I remember growing up and, like, I had a but boyfriend did you... at me because there was a cow passing sign. At, Sorry, um, say it out again. There was a cow passing sign right okay. before you get to my neighborhood. So it was very, like, very rural, very country. Did you <laughs> grow up, like, doing a lot of outdoor activities? Like, in, in the South, uh, from what I hear, like, it's really popular to, like, go hunting or fishing or things like that. Is that just uh, <laughs> the way you're laughing? It's, I probably have some misconception about the South, but enlighten me. What kind of activities do you participate in, like, growing up? I mean, yes and no. That's definitely some people's version of the South. It's definitely true for people. Um, for me, that just wasn't it. I don't like fishing. Um, my okay. uncle's, like... I had an uncle who wakes up at like 4 a.m. in the morning to go fish at 6. That's not for me. And that's um, that's his hobby? That's his hobby. That's what he does. At 4 like, a.m.? For free. Interesting. So, okay. that's his <laughs> He's fishing set for free. <laughs> um, my dad did teach me how to shoot. Uh, or he started teaching me how to shoot. He let me shoot a squirrel that was coming out of our attic. And I didn't, like, when I was 6 or 5, and I hit it. I didn't think I was going to actually hit it, and I felt so bad. So I was like, I'm never going to hunt again. Oh, wait. Like, so you started fun. learning how to shoot at 6? Yeah, around okay. six or five. I mean, that's My not dad unpopular, just me... I think. Hmm? That's not too unpopular in the South, I guess. It's not. It's, um, we live in a gated community, and it was still, like, he was definitely, we were one of the only Black families in our community, and this was a six-foot-four Black man outside with a gun shooting at animals. So, mm. you know, like, guns were definitely okay in the South, as long as it was in the right situation. Got it, got it. I mean, I mean... I grew up with a military dad, and I remember, like, walking into his room when I was, like, 10 and seeing a gun. But I still didn't, like, it was such a foreign, like, where I'm from, like, you don't just, we, we don't, our gun laws, like, we're pretty much, I think rifles are allowed, but no one actually has them. Because okay. you, you don't see a need to have guns, so it's not really common. So I was looking at this pistol for, like, 30 minutes, and I'm just like, oh, wow, this is an actual gun, you know? <laughs> right. Kind of thing. So, no, yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank goodness that was uh, before social media, so I didn't take it to school or anything. Thank so. God. Yeah, I tried to make a video with it. Um, yeah, yeah. But well, you, so you went to school in uh, South Carolina. Uh, how was high school like uh, for you? What's the typical South Carolina high school experience for uh, a young black lady? Um, so I think of high school differently now because you definitely, it depends on what high school you go to. You do have, you have a couple of schools where it's like really segregated. Um, but South Carolina has. Still? A, still, you definitely wow. do. Um, but, uh... well, my dad is from Alabama and Alabama to me, in my opinion, it seems like it's much worse or not much worse, but it seems like it's worse with like segregation still being a thing. Um, cause he has like a black side of his town and a white side of his town. And it took me being 20 something years old to understand there was a white side of town. And like, so I was when, when you say white side of town, like this is not like, obviously this is not constitutional. It's not like in any state law that this is, but you know, whites just find themselves congregated and black just find themselves congregated in one part of town. So like, if you go to the other part of town, you just feel a way that, Hey, this is kind of like. Well, I think, and that's where um, it definitely differs from the rest, because I think maybe out here you would just feel uncomfortable and people mm -hmm. would just, like, um, possibly treat you different. Back home, people won't make you feel uncomfortable. They'll say something to your face and say, like, hey, we don't want you on this side of town. Um, really? I remember going home during July. Yeah, during this past July, going to Alabama, and we were... Um, planning our reunion, our family reunion, and we were going to pick up a tent. It was way over yonder. And we were 
passing and there was only a couple gas stations and we asked to use the gas station's bathroom. And one lady was just like, we don't have a bathroom for y'all. And that's just what it is. Interesting. Um, we very much knew. This wasn't in the 50s, was it? <laughs> no, this is in 2019. So, but we did. Nice. Um, as we were leaving, we asked another man, like, did he know where another gas station was with a bathroom? And he was like, they have a bathroom. And he was like, oh, don't pay those people no mind. There's a nicer bathroom. Um, there's a nicer gas station down the street. Like, I'm sorry to have this, y'all. And it was an older white um, white male who's, like, also country. So it shows you the dynamics of, like, everybody's not going to be that way just because they're from a certain area. But some people definitely are still that way, that um, way. unfortunately, today in America. Is it, is it common to grow up and, like, spend your whole life in the South? Um, like, growing up in the South, going to school in the South, getting a job in the South, getting married, uh, eventually dying in the South. Do you think that, you know, things like this still happen because... Um, people don't give themselves the opportunity to like venture out or like explore other places to see how things are done. They're just like locked into the way things are done uh, in some parts of the South. Um, well, I think yes and no. I think that dynamic of just like staying where you are and building home and family where you are, is just a natural dynamic that we see throughout the United States. Um, the South also, as much as it is like segregation stuff, like, um, they don't have the facto segregation where it's like by law, but they do have the general segregation where it's like everybody separates, like just because everybody separates. And as much as that's bad, it also does offer some protection where it comes to like building a business. You already have your market there because you're in the black community. Mm. Um, whereas if you move west or if you move north, does, black, does the black community patronize its own? Like there's this whole thing about, you know, us buying our, <laughs> from ourselves and, you know, keeping the dollar within the community, you know. Um, I definitely think where I'm from, and that's something I definitely appreciate from the South. And I do see people um, trying to do this out here in Denver too. Mm. But I definitely think coming from where I'm from, I definitely saw a lot of black businesses being supported by black citizens throughout my town. Um, so like my mom owned a chiropractic business. She was South Carolina's first black woman to open a chiropractic business. And for the most part, she employed all black people. She had a lot of black um, customers, predominantly black customers. So I do think you do get to see the way black people build each other up. Because I do think in the media so much, um, so many times you get to hear the version of us pulling each other down. I'll definitely say growing up, um, that's not what I saw. And even going back home now, I listen to the radio and it's like, Black-owned radios, black commercials. Like, you know, it's broadcasting to a black community. And yeah. when you look at um, the Democratic primary that just happened, and you look at how candidates treated South Carolina, it's because they're the only place where all the um, most of the Democrats are African-Americans. Mm. So I think, if anything, you see this cultural hub where black people are able to kind of build and shift their own community because they have, you know, a mass population of black people. Got it. Got it. When was the first time you left South Carolina? Did you have family uh, that you visited, you know, as a kid in other parts of the country? Uh, I mean, you talked about going on a cruise once. Uh, can you talk to me about that first time? How old were you and what was the experience like knowing that, oh, this isn't where I live anymore. This is obviously a different state kind of thing. Where did you go to and how was that experience like? Um, so my parents, I'm really thankful. They were able to take me on, me and my family, um, on trips, usually like once a year or so. So we would go visit like Tennessee or we go visit um, New York. I had an aunt in New York, had family in Florida, Alabama. Um, so we would definitely go visit other places. Atlanta was really big because Atlanta is like right, like four hours away. And then Charlotte was like an hour away. So visiting other places, I don't think it really dawned on me how different other places were from South Carolina mm. until I moved to um, Denver. I don't think I really noticed oh, to really? or to it. be like, you know, this place doesn't necessarily have the same demographics. And so I moved across um, country and then I had to like stay there for a minute. Then I noticed, oh, this is really different. <laughs> what warranted you to move to Denver? Was it college? Um, college, no. So actually, I went to college at Winthrop University, which is a small liberal arts school in South Carolina. They're pretty diverse. They're 40% diverse, 30% Black. Um, yeah, I mean, and, it is an art school, so I guess. Well, most of the people there, um, they, they study like media, exercise science. We were really big on history, too. So you met people from all type of backgrounds. And the thing about South Carolina and North Carolina is they're really small. So you party with people from every school. So people from Clemson, USC. And it was very like a, you know, like a dynamic where everybody's meeting each other. 
Um, so I started a nonprofit there, or I started a um, student organization there, where I was able to help kids in local communities um, with after-school programs and take them on field trips and do stuff like that, which led me to work for the mayor of Charlotte on her campaign. Yeah. Um, her name is Vi Lyles, and she became the first Black woman to be mayor back home. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I moved out here to work for the Senate, and I also moved here to be a part of AmeriCorps, where I worked as a truancy counselor at a local high school. Well, I thought Vi, Vi Lyles was a mayor in North Carolina, not South yes. Carolina. Oh, so, so Winthrop is... Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Oh, I went to school in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is right on the border um, between South Carolina and North Carolina. So a lot oh, of people okay. went and worked in North Carolina for the day and then um, lived in South Carolina for a day because taxes were cheaper in South Carolina and they paid more in North Carolina. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I used to live in D.C., so yeah, a lot of people who live in Virginia, you know, work in D.C., that kind of thing, so makes sense. What do you think led you to get interested in nonprofits? Because the average university student is, you know, busy finding themselves, you know, exploring, uh, for you, you know, were already involved in things like nonprofit and, you know, helping the community. Do you think it was, you know, growing up with your siblings, you know, the two Gs, your, your mom, your dad? <laughs> what were the things in your life that, that made you have an affinity uh, for nonprofit, for community, uh, that kind of thing, as early as college? Um, I think for me growing up, I always wanted to help people. And I told my mom that since I was a kid. Um, I wanted to be a teacher, but not really be a teacher. It's like I mm. wanted to do something. You don't want the teacher salary, huh? <laughs> well, not. <laughs> well, I don't even think it's say. that. No, it's working in the school district that you're like, oh my God, I'm going to pull my hair out. Um, oh, got it. <laughs> it's working within the school district, most definitely. Um, so, yeah. And I wanted more freedom than that. So, I didn't want every day to look like inside the classroom, but some days to look like inside the classroom. And it kind of started off with me just, like, not really knowing I was doing it, but then doing it along the way. So when I was 16, I started working at Boys and Girls Club until I was 18. Mm. Um, then I was, like, 18, 19, I started working for a nonprofit that helped, that had caregivers. So I worked with disabled youth and disabled elders um, and people on hospice. So that led me through that nonprofit. Wow. And then okay. After that, I started my own student organization. I just noticed how many resources and the way you can really impact the community um, by doing that type of work. We saw all of our students um, make all A's or at least end up on honor roll that year. So that means they had either all A's or all A's and B's. And I saw how quick you can change stuff like that in communities. So that really led me to like want to pursue nonprofits and moving to Denver has just shown me it with a different demographic Um, and shown me how I can help people in a totally different light. Because I think it's America is like five different Americas, <laughs> but we're at More least like twelve different now. Americas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and going from west to south, you just see that there's like so many different needs for so many different places. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing I love about having my own, my own organization is like, well, these people need help with this here, so we can provide these resources here. Um, but these people on the other side of the United States might need help with these. And we can still provide them with those resources that we want to. Got it. Got it. And just to touch on some of the stuff you do right now. So I was, you know, trying to look up your bio, uh, you know, when we're chatting before the episode. And you help kids with emotional learning in high school right now. That's a very peculiar thing. What exactly is emotional learning for the benefit of our people listening all over the world? Yeah, so um, I, well, I used to now, so <laughs> I have taught high school for the last year and a half, two, um, two years, and I've been blessed with teaching, like, you know, six class periods each year, and basically what I do is I teach social-emotional learning through the YES Institute, um, and then through them, I'm also able to throw my own spin on it and add in a lot of social justice elements, so we're talking about things like your emotions, um, how they develop, your brain and how it works, healthy relationships and what they look like. What grade well, also, is this? So ninth through 12th grade. So all my babies are either starting high school or my babies are ending high school. So you can see them the whole way. Do they like when you call them babies? <laughs> um, I, they don't stop me ever. I call them babies in my honey buns all the time. And they're always like, you know, you give us pet names. And I'm always like, oh. Well, nobody else asks me stop. They're always just like, yeah, you're the only one who still does this in high school. But I'm yeah. fine with it. I still look at them like babies. And I wish our justice system in our world would too. I mean, it's pretty interesting, you know, what because I can remember 
in high school, we had like a counseling office. But like, if you're walking into an office, you have to go with like your report card and she'll like look at your grades and like some, like not all of them, there was a particular staff who like look at your grades and kind of like use that to like analyze you in some way. That, yeah. Okay, you're doing well, you're not doing well, you should do this, you should do that. Not really talking to you about, you know, other stuff that might be going on. But it's just interesting to see someone like you through the Yes Institute, you know, talking to young kids about emotional learning. Because sometimes they might be feeling a certain way, uh, but they don't know exactly what it is. And, you know, they might just need someone to guide them, um, basically to guide them and help shape them on how to interact with other people in the school and other people in the community. Um, is that something you deliberately wanted to do or you were just like presented the opportunity by the Yes Institute to like fall, it fell on your lap kind of thing? Do you see yourself working with young kids uh, to help shape them uh, before they become young adults? Um, yeah, so I've always wanted to work with young kids. Um, I've always really just wanted to work with families and help out in any way. So I'm really thankful for all the experience I got at the Yes Institute and the time that I spent with them. Um, and now I'm working more so on my own foundation, the Franklin Foundation, because I think a lot of um, students need this work, but I think there's a lot of people just out in our community who need to have classes like this and lessons around diversity also mm -hmm. and how um, our mental health is affected through different jobs and different identities that we hold in society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that, you know, in a second, uh, but I'm really interested in the work you did, how how exactly you said you you were allocated like six classes a year? How exactly did you? Was it like a classroom setting? You actually taught the students about different things, or you had like group exercises? Because when I think about you know young kids in high school nowadays, I went to high school at a time when there was no Instagram, there was no. But now it's like a lot of things cause anxiety in young kids. You know, cause depression. Um, uh, I don't know if cell phones uh, do more harm than good, but things like that. How do you like um, guide these kids? Is it just like a classroom setting or you work with them one-on-one -on -one, or what's, what's the setup like? So we're in a classroom setting. Um, so last year, I think I had five class periods and this year I had six class periods. Last year, I had a little over 100 kids um, on my caseload. And then this year, I had 130 plus kids on my caseload. Oh. Um, so I get classes every day. Um, same students for the most part. A couple of students trickle in and out throughout the semester. And then a couple more added in as the semester goes. And they're tested um, on different things. And basically, everybody's assigned a mentor. So you have your mentors and your mentees. And your mentors um, work to help your mentees through life and they help them, you know, like get on task with their schoolwork, help with attendance. Yeah, so we do all different types of things. And then working for a college coordinator, our seniors are able to work with her every year. So she has helped out a lot and she's been a tremendous help. Um, they Last year we had over $685,000 in scholarships for our students. And that's really? only 20, yes, and that's of less than 30 students applying. So. And over 80% of our students um, were on end of the year on target with their credits and things. So our mentees are usually more at risk. Um, so either they need a little push with their schoolwork or maybe they need um, help with their attendance or maybe it's just like anxiety mm. and working through, you know, like high school in your first year or your second year of high school. So we offer mentoring or they offer mentoring services. Got it, got it. Well, you guys are doing the Lord's work. Uh, kudos to you guys. But besides working in school, um, you also are involved or where, I don't know if it's where or are involved in a nonprofit that work with prisoners. Uh, you, you go to prisons and from what I understand, you teach prisoners how to prevent sexual assault. Is that it? Or I'm missing, I'm missing the whole objective of that nonprofit. Um, no, so that's that is part of what we do at the um, nonprofit. So I also work for another nonprofit called the Blue Bench. Um, they're amazing. They are a nonprofit that works with sexual assault in the Denver in Denver area. So um, I work in the PREA program. That is not all we do. PREA stands for Prison Rape Elimination Act, um, and it's Prison basically making elimination. Oh, okay, got it, got it. Okay. Um, so basically what we do is we come in and we talk to women on their first day at the facility and we just um, discuss like how you can be safe while you're in the facility and God forbid if something were to happen, this is how you can report it because it's super important that we get that knowledge out to people. Um, 
while they are enjoying their stay there. Enjoying their stay, like. <laughs> I know, I was like, oh, that's a weird way to end it. Honey. I mean, you okay. So, but wait, you're working primarily with female prisoners. Okay, okay. I guess that makes sense in a way, because you know, we're in Colorado. You guys need to understand now. Colorado has some of the most secure prisons in the U.S. Like, I think El Chapo is in one of the prisons. Larry Hoover is here somewhere. Like, all the terrorists and people, they get out. So when you say, you know, you're teaching people to prevent sexual assault in prison, I'm like, uh, is she, like, teaching people how to shank people while they're trying to... Like, no, exactly I'm never... She, <laughs> like, what exactly... <laughs> how exactly is she carrying this out? But now that you've explained it, it sounds... Uh, a, a little better. I'm like, okay, okay, I can see how that works. So I'm like, okay, I'm like, she must be fearless, you know, just going to be. No, um, I feel completely comfortable with them. They're they're great. The women that I get to work with are really amazing. Um, we even have peer educators who are women who are currently serving a sentence at the um, facility, and they are co-facilitators. And what they do is they come in and they um, help us teach class, and they come from a perspective of someone staying in the facility already. So certain things like we coming in as citizens and as um, just like members of the Blue Bench don't quite understand because we're not staying at the facility. They do understand and they do teach um, lessons around that. So it's really interesting. And I love my coworkers, all of them. They're all amazing women to work with. Um, yeah, I will definitely say once they found out I was a teacher, some of them asked me, like, who was better behaved today, the students or us? And... <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna ask. Have you ever experienced something out of the ordinary during one of those trips, like, like, like the boombox cartoons, for instance, when when uh, Riley went to the prison and you know <laughs> there was a riot or something? No, no. no. So we try to prevent. Actually, okay. I think there's a lot of um, Colorado alone has a huge issue with sexual assault. Um, we as a country do in general. So I think there is a lot of you know there's a lot of jokes around it. There's also a lot of stereotypes around it. And I think it's because it's a true thing and we need to, like, talk about it um, and talk about how we can help people. Because, you know, crime is one thing and your sentence is one thing, but nobody's getting sentenced to be sexually assaulted. So we got to make sure we protect people while they are serving time in their facilities. Got it. Got it. And for the benefit of uh, some of our listeners who are listening locally or even internationally, what are uh, one or two tips you can give to um uh, young ladies or men who go through uh, a sexual assault experience or uh, an attempt at sexual assault experience, maybe locally? Um, yeah. So I guess this anywhere. This is just a tip for anywhere. One, you are so brave. Um, you know, like, you are not that moment. You're so brave and you're so beyond that. Um, there are hopefully resources near you. If there are not resources near you, you can always go to the Blue Bench um, or you can Google the Blue Bench Denver and we should pop up. And you can at least look at um, stuff on our site. If you're in the Denver area, then you're able to use our services. You can always call in. We have a hotline where you can talk to someone um, who's available 24-7 if you're ever sexually assaulted or if you were sexually assaulted in the past and you want to talk about it or anything. If you have questions about sexual assault, um, you can always feel free to call our hotline. Yeah, can, and can you also like, take a few minutes to speak to the men. Because sometimes, you know, you have a young men who do not realize that some of their behaviors are actually classified as assault. Uh, what are some of the maybe not so popular or maybe even popular behaviors that men might engage in but might not realize that it's sexual assault, maybe at the workplace or maybe in school or even maybe even digitally while interacting with uh, the opposite sex? Yeah, um, well, I think we all grew up with the saying, no means no, am I right? Yeah, we all grew up hearing that said, um, I think instead of no means no, one thing we should live on is yes means yes, because you never know when you're pressuring someone into saying yes, or you never know um, when you're making someone uncomfortable that they just don't want to tell you no. So just knowing that like, if you have to pressure somebody, it's probably not a great situation for you. And just remembering that perpetrators can be any gender, any race, any sex. Um, so making sure that we're getting consent every time. I've always feel like it's better safe than sorry, because right now we're getting into the Me Too movement, and I see a lot of people who are harsh towards survivors, um, you know, and I understand everybody's open for judgment. However, it's kind of like if you follow these guidelines, you make sure you get consent every time, then, you know, nobody will end up in these situations. So super important for you and the person that you're choosing to be intimate with that you get consent and that everybody in the party feels like comfortable and safe. Exactly. Good advice. Good advice. Um, 
But let, let's talk about your foundation for a little bit. Um, you, you've had, you know, experiences working with all these uh, foundations. Uh, you decided to set up your own. Um, Triple G Foundation would have been a very nice name, but you decided to use your last name and just call it the Franklin Foundation. Um, what need what what need did you see weren't met in the community that that you know motivated you into setting up that particular foundation and why do you use your last name why choose the name franklin foundation um i think that's really interesting i chose franklin franklin actually means freedom so or at least when i googled it that's what allegedly that's what it means when i googled it i don't know but i want to be free so um and i want to to give communities freedom because I feel like right now a lot of people are locked in where they are because there's not really opportunities to leave their community like you were speaking about before. So if we look at where people are in America, um, you can literally look on a virtual map and I can send it to you if you want. And if you look at where most Black people are in America, it's in the Southeast. If you look at where most Latinas are in America, it's in the West Coast. Um, Why does this usually happen? Because we really don't get the opportunities we need to leave our communities. Um, and once we do leave our communities, we find that there's not many opportunities for people who look like us beyond the Southeast or beyond the West. So I really want to be able to create opportunities all over the world and all over the nation for um, people of all colors and all backgrounds. I think there's a lot of different ways to serve communities and a lot of different things that we can do. And there's so many different needs out there um, from mental health, to environmental issues, to education. There's so much that we can do. So that's why I decided to start my own where I'm not limited to focusing on one area and I can kind of focus on things as they come up. Yeah, I mean, you're not limited to focusing on one area, but what are some of the areas, maybe the one or two areas you started off with as kind of like low-hanging fruit that you decided to uh, attack head-on before, you know, uh, exploring others? So I decided to start working with youth. Um, We've always been out of community recreation centers because they usually are already there. Um, I see them as a cornerstone and a foundation within their own right in the community. So I like to partner with community um, recreation centers in the area. And we started off working with youth and um, also teaching youth like topics around mental health and diversity. Um, I definitely think the way students and just youth grow up seeing themselves in the world or seeing themselves how they'll eventually see themselves in the world. So we basically um, really want to make sure we praise them while they're young for being who they are. And when you say youth, like you're talking, what, 17 to like 21, 22 kind of thing or younger? Um, Younger. And I guess that's where our services, and this is what always happens to me when I run something, is um, it always ends up with all ages. So I'm 24 right now. Um, When I... Wait, I don't you're, know you're 24? I'm 24. And you have your own foundation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And okay. when I think about me and um, friends and people my age, like we still still need help. And it's like when I see myself as you, I'm a child of God, like close enough. Like I feel like you're, that you're, you're, you're a honey bun. So what was the what was the term honey you used for your kids? Babies. Yeah, babies, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm on that level now. I'm, I think I'm, I'm like saying, 25 I'm and under. It's still kind of like you're trying to figure out the world. Um, so. Right now, we're working with youth anywhere from 19 to, like, four years old, I think. Um, but I do, over time, want it to be from youth from, like, probably 3 to 25. Got it. Got it. I mean, it's inspirational that you, you know, have your own foundation at 23. I also have ambitions, you know, very long-term ambitions to start my foundation uh, around, you know, areas of education, uh, entrepreneurship, and elections. So, like, the three E's kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, it's just something I've been thinking about for like eight to nine years and I'll probably won't implement for like 10 years. But just seeing that, you know, you you conceptualized it and you just went after it and just put your website out there and now you're on the podcast and spreading your message. Like, uh, it's inspiring for someone like me to just like, hey, man, get off your ass. You don't need to wait till you have like, you start earning $10 million a year to really cause change uh, in the community. What were some of the things that helped you to bring this into fruition? Like, obviously you had experience working with other foundations, but did you have kind of like a support system with your family? Did you go through a program, how to start Foundation World One? Do you like watch YouTube videos? What were some of the practical steps you took to bring this thing to life called Franklin Foundation? Um, I think it really was birthed out of frustration. Moving from South Carolina, in South Carolina, like I was saying, my high, 
my college was 30% black. My high school was 60 to 50% black every year. So it was um, moving from one place to another. And I guess I saw how much my identity was praised by my teachers. And I didn't necessarily know that was going on. But they made sure that they instilled that in all of us. And it was like, hey, like, I love your hair. I love your skin color. Um, I love this about you. And they would always do that for me. So I didn't really notice that was out of the norm because I was always <laughs> around people who looked like me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I started going to schools here and I just noticed that was not the norm where I was like my freshman, my sophomore class president, and student body members. Um, my kids here didn't necessarily have the same situation. Um, working in schools in Colorado, I have like heard the N-word used multiple times for kids who are not Black. I've heard a lot of things said that necessarily just wouldn't be said where I'm from, um, especially now given the political climate. So I think all of that kind of pressured me and made me want to teach this subject more. And I was even working for a nonprofit and I started teaching Black History Month and they told me I couldn't do it. And I was just like, what? So I decided at that point, I want my nonprofit for myself. Um, mm-hmm. And I had, during college, I had been working with artists and the artists like uh, musicians or artists like actual artists like painters and stuff like actual painting artists usually um i did work with a couple of musicians but really my whole thing was art and like getting kids involved in art too um so i have worked with a couple of artists i remember somebody mentioning legal zoom to me and was like if you want to start business like you Mm. can go that route and so I got on and I started looking into like what I needed for a nonprofit. And I was working at the Senate before and I was actually senators who I knew had their own nonprofits yeah. prior to becoming senators. Um, and just like really figuring out what do I want to do in the world, made a sketch plan, like wrote it down to God. Um, God is really important to me. I devote my life for God. So definitely, you know, cast my plans to him first and pray to this in his plans also so we can make this thing align. Um, and that's what <laughs> got everything moving. It's been a lot of work, but I don't think it's, I don't want to say it's as hard as people think. Oh, really? I mean, that that's for you to say. <laughs> well, I'm saying, like, I mean, I'm telling people if I can do it, anybody can do it. Anyone can do it. No, I know. It's impressive. You know, it, it just speaks to the fact that it probably comes natural to you and this is what you love to do. And, you know, you've been in all these circles, whether it's nonprofit, but you've also been, like, in the political circle you talked about you know, South Carolina and the, the Democrats that are working in the Senate, uh, being on the campaign for Viola Laos in North Carolina, that kind of thing. Do you see yourself participating? And this might be, like, take this as your first setup question. So take this as practice. So when CNN asks you five years from now, you know how to answer. Do you, do you see yourself getting involved in local politics in uh, South Carolina or even nationally sometime in the future? Because, you know, someone was saying, you know, how how better to affect the youth on a grand scale than, you know, having resources, controlling resources of the state or the local government or city, that kind of thing. Is that something you see for yourself? Because, man, Garcelle will look pretty good on a campaign poster, you know. Garcelle <laughs> doesn't sell, that kind of thing. So, oh, okay, I like that. No, Garcelle does sell or something like, I don't know. I, I don't know, it just know. came we gotta out. gotta work that out. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the slogan. Um, I really don't know. I feel like I've worked all these different jobs, not knowing I was going to work all these different jobs. Mm. So um, I got into all of this because I pretty much went on the wrong path and then like needed something to do. And politics and education is like what I've always said. What do you mean going on the wrong path? Um, I got kicked out of high school when I was a sophomore, I think. That, that's yeah. not too uncommon. Like, what happened? What, what was the deal? Um, somebody was in drunk. Somebody came to class drunk, mm-hmm. and I took the bottle, and I tried to hide it from them. And I didn't even drink, and I got kicked out of school. I did get back in, but I was, like, out of school for a month. I lost my president. Wait, just because you hid a drink for someone? You got kicked out I of school? I didn't even get to hide it, so <laughs> I got... I don't understand. Was this a Catholic school? That doesn't sound no, like something that can get not. you kicked out of school. I know. I feel like that's, and I think that's the thing in um, God's life, or I think that's the thing in my life um, that God has planned for me is like, I don't really get the chance to slip up as much because once I do, it's like you get kicked out for something that everybody else probably would get a slap on the wrist for. So, you know, take it for granted salt. Um, And then when I went to college, I was just like partying all the time my freshman, sophomore year. But like, in my first semester, junior year, I had more fun than everyone else, I think. Like, okay. So I needed something to do. And that's how I, um, that's how I found, like, doing what I love, thank God. But, um, yeah, 
I forgot your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, we're just practicing for CNN. You know, when they ask you, "Hey, do you see yourself getting involved in the mayoral run uh, in two months?" That was a now, great whatever. segue to not answer the question. <laughs> that wasn't a great segue. I could edit this out. <laughs> Take it back to your. Thanks. <laughs> but, but yeah, you did well. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. And I definitely relate with you uh, in the whole sense of, hey. You know, all my friends do shit, but when I do it, like, I'm the one who gets caught. So I'm just, hey, man, maybe I wasn't just caught out for this stuff. And, you know, just keep it on straight and narrow for as yeah. much as I can, in a way. Um, but you seem to be a very spiritual person. And, you know, uh, I might be, you know, generalizing here, but that might be something common in the South. Uh, also, uh, not to take it back there, uh, uh, you have a lot of faith based organization and you know everything is based so if you call your mom today and you know talk to her about something like my mom was just texting me about uh the coronavirus and she just had to slip in some bible verses uh there mm. obviously to <laughs> and i'm like yeah yeah right so <laughs> what was even my question i guess i'm trying to ask like in your journey um because some people might say that there's a difference between religion and spirituality, especially here in the U.S. Some people just focus on morals and whatever. Some people use the law as their guidance. Um, what is it for you that makes, because you're at the age now that, you know, your parents don't have to tell you anything. What is it for you that makes you still hold on to your faith and, you know, use that instead of, you know, the law or, or instead of using an app or whatever there is? Uh, what experiences have led you to hold on to your faith. And I'm saying this because it might be someone listening to this who just needs to hear someone else's experience to kind of like motivate themselves. So, so what is that for you? Okay, real quick question before I jump into that. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you said that especially here in the U.S., the people live off their morals. I would think, well, I guess I could see that. But I'm very, no, I'm very interested in you coming from West Africa where I've seen how, um, not necessarily South Nigerians, but I have seen Nigerian churches. Um, I've oh, been to really? Nigerian church. Yes, oh, I know. Okay. But they very a, much you have in a story my, to tell then. <laughs> well, in my opinion, they favor Baptist black churches. Like everybody is just real into it and it's gonna be a real long service, and that's it. It might be hot. Like mm. that's all I know about the services. So and like my my mom was a minister, she didn't practice or anything, but like we're very involved in church. That's what I was thinking. Like to me, if you've been to like a Nigerian church service that you had to sit through for like three hours plus. Mm. Um, it's pretty much kind of <laughs> similar to a Black Baptist church um, in the South that you also are going to have to sit through three hour plus mm. and it's going to be Pentecostal. So, yeah. Um, that's interesting. I want to go to Africa, specifically West Africa and study life there. So Really? Um, well, what countries What countries do you want to visit? Ghana? Cote d'Ivoire? Um, Ghana, Sierra Leone, Nigeria. Um, really, I want to travel through all of West Africa. Um, so I guess that's what brings me to spirituality, too, is just seeing, like, for me, growing up Black, um, I never had, like, I hear a lot about the white gaze here, which is... The white like, what? You know, the, the white gaze. Okay. Which is the thought that, like, Black people live their life um, knowing that, like, white people are watching them, so they have to act, like, a certain way. Mm. Um yeah, I can definitely see how that's a thing, but I will definitely say I didn't necessarily feel it until I moved. Um, once again, it's that, yeah, it, once again, it's that shift just from leaving, like, you know, a predominantly Black area. Yeah. And I think for me, um, being a Black woman and feeling celebrated, it very much came from, like, you know, the South and the aesthetic of the South, like, watching how hard my grandmother worked, which transitioned to how my how hard my mother worked, which was transition to how hard I will work too. Um, I just think like there's no way we could have made it if it wasn't for God because mm. I just look at it. My grandma, from what I know of her, um, of her mom, her mother was born a slave. From what I know. So your great-grandmother was born a slave. Wow. So my grandma was born in 1919. And then my, um, and she was a sharecropper and she bought the land that like she sharecropped on. If you're familiar with sharecropping, it was like a practice where black people who were recently been free from slavery had yeah. to work for a profit of their crop and land that someone else owned. And for her to like yeah. purchase like that land, you know. church servitude, right? And for her to purchase the land that they lived on, you know, and they worked on, that says a lot for her work ethic. Um, 
And then for my mom, she, you know, got herself scholarships, went to school, became the first Black woman to, like, be a chiropractor in South Carolina. So that also took a lot of work. And I just think none of this can happen without faith um, and trusting God. I think, especially when you're from the South, or really, once you live in America for a while, you can definitely just understand how strong um, certain prejudice permeates through society. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to make it, especially at that magnitude, then God has to be on your side for me. And mm. that's why I feel like anything that I get in life is through God, unless through my words. Like, I see him working through me, unless me doing work. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, you, you touched on the white gaze, which is, uh, which is a real thing. Like, mm-hmm. believe me, it is. <laughs> and I guess that's the thing, is I don't want kids... I see how damaging it can be to the mental health of... Um, Black and brown and white students, just all students. Um, and I want to make sure that we're teaching lessons on the Franklin Foundation around mental health and diversity so we don't have to have kids who are growing up underneath this because I can definitely see a change in how it affects somebody's um, self-esteem and their personality when they grow Facts. up. You know, like understanding they have to act a certain way or they'll be reprimanded. Facts, facts. Like, I didn't grow up here. I've only lived here for, like, three years or so. But even within that three years, I'm like, what the hell is going on here? Like, <laughs> you know, when I, I call people... Denver. Yeah, when I call people back home, they're like, dude, you're acting different. You're sounding different. Like, what's mm-hmm. going on? Like, you know, but, um, you know, sometimes uh, maybe subconsciously you hear things like, hey, use your white voice or something like that. It's like... Yeah, coming. Um, to having a split personality and feeling that your authentic self is not enough in a sense, uh, which can, like you said, for a young kid or a teenager or youth, can be damaging to your self-esteem. Yeah, I was having a conversation when I was working at the Senate and I had a friend and she was from Colorado. Um, we were both going to see Boulder at the time for mm-hmm. our master's and we were both working for the Senate at the time and we were talking about like the white gaze and code switching and I was saying how I never really code switched. I was never in honors classes. And the way it pretty much worked at my high school and my middle school was honors classes with white kids, um, college prep classes, and basic classes were for black kids. And I was in, like, all three. Um, so I never really felt the need to code switch because I was, once again, with all black people. Um, and even when I was around white people, it wasn't for long. So it was like, I didn't need to code switch. Whereas she was from Denver, um, she went to, she bus got bus to a predominantly white high school here. And she was saying how you have to code switch in order to make it and how like you just can't make it any type of way. And we kind of started getting um, a little friction between each other and the conversation started to be more heated. And she just said like, oh, we'll look at your hair and look at your nails look at the way you look like you couldn't make it in Colorado looking like that your whole life and she was also a black um and I know she didn't mean any like deep harm from it and she was kind of crying just saying like you just couldn't like you just don't understand the experience like you just wouldn't be able to make it into the space that we are now and I guess that's when I noticed um how deeply it affected other people because I sitting on the outside is like why would you say that um and like, yes, you can make it. But at the same time, for her, that was her reality. Like she had to code switch for all these years. And it made me realize the impact that it has on us as human beings also. Yeah. And that's uh, like, I can also like you piggyback off that to to make her an argument for immigrants also. Like immigrants, you know, someone like me coming from a country where we're all black, like this is all I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I come here and I, I'm like, hey, fuck the system. I'm getting mine. And I go out there and I get it because I didn't grow up being subjected and being put in my place and being, you know, brought up with the mentality that, oh, there's a white man up there because we're all black where I come from. So maybe in a way, you know, immigrants who come over here have that sense. And it's not just from black nations, like countries all over the world have that sense that shit, like, you know, things work over here, you know. Hard work is what it is that, you know, to help with any social restrictions there are and we just break through and make it work. But I guess, you know, it might be difficult if you come up uh, in a system where, you know, you're being subjugated like your whole life and, you know, it takes a a lot of effort to like break through. But that's why things like this are important, right? Things like this podcast, things like reaching out to understand where you're coming from. Uh, and getting to interact with you because just this uh, 30 plus minutes we spent together uh, has, you know, added to 
my um, knowledge about, you know, African-Americans and things like that. And the more we come together, uh, immigrants, African-Americans, just people in general, like people from different cultures, uh, the name of the podcast is Culture Class, uh, we'll get to understand how people do things in other parts of the world and hopefully in one or two generations, uh, you know, be a much stronger uh, race. And when I say race, I mean the human race uh, than we are uh, right now. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think, like you're saying, in one or two generations, I'll definitely, just the immigrant experience in itself is very different, like you're saying. I have a, um, a lot of immigrant students and having to explain to them like systemic racism is very hard, especially when you don't even have the language for it um, to translate. So it's definitely a different experience. Um, if you've ever been to South Carolina and you've been on the coast, it's like Gullah Geechee culture. So everybody kind of Gullah and Geechee culture. Gullah and Geechee? Yes. So Gullah and Geechee culture are like more towards the island. It's for people who are more on the coast and um, they're on the beach and they're closer to like when you speak to them, you would think they might be like Jamaican or they might um, be from somewhere on the island because basically that part of South Carolina was very able to keep their culture. A lot of white people left after slavery ended. Um, so it was filled with African inhabitants, former slaves, Native Americans, and Latinos from Cuba um, and other places who would sell over. So when you listen to their accent, it's a totally different accent than um, most people have. And that's all I can think is like going to visit my Bella Gucci family where it's like all of us are black. Um, I might not see anybody from a different place for a minute. And then coming back here and it's like you have to learn how to code switch and your accent needs to be gone. Um, it's definitely different. I can only imagine learning that on top of other customs in America that people have to become acquainted with. And just understanding, um, I guess, also the environmental effects it has on people. Like you look at Flint with their water crisis. Yeah. Um, there's so many other places, even here in Denver, we have air pollution. In South Carolina, we just got done giving um, donations to Denmark, South Carolina, whose water system has been poisoned for the last 10 years. Oh, so Denmark is an actual town in South Because I thought it was a country. I was like... No, so there is Denmark, the country, and then there's Denmark, South Carolina. Because when, when you say Denmark, I'm like, wait, she has a nonprofit. She does work in Denmark? Like... No, we we wish. So Denmark has had problems with um, dirty water being in their well from a chemical called Holocene that they were using. And according to the town, they're saying it's just discoloration. Um, it possibly, it has been linked to diseases, but because they are not allowing people to test it, we'll never know if it actually caused the diseases that um, they're alleged to cause. But we were able as a foundation to donate money um, for them and we've been raising it, and now the money is going towards getting seniors who are unable to leave their house um, water supplies during the corona pandemic. Wow. Like, you're doing, you're making things happen that the government hasn't been able to. That's, uh, that's pretty admirable. Well, it's been pretty interesting, like, getting to talk to you, um, know a little bit about you. Uh, hopefully, you know, our, and we, we, you know, we can have links in the show notes as well. Hopefully our audience uh, know a little bit about you, what you do. Those who are interested in connecting with you, especially locally, uh, can do so. Um, at the end of the podcast, I like to give my guests a few minutes to like say whatever. You know, if there's something you want to put out there, uh, if there's something you want to tell your future self, if there are questions you have for me and where I'm from, if you just want to, you know, throw out your social media handles and tell people to follow you, whatever it is you want to do, you, you're the host for the next few minutes. Okay, so I'm always super interested, um, since I moved from the South and I saw a big shift, I'm really interested in what Africans' perspectives is of, like, Black America and um, just, like, the political climate for Black people here in the United States once they move here. Yeah, sure. I mean, it depends on where they move to, and I don't know if I can speak for the whole continent. Uh, but I can I can speak for some parts of... Uh, Nigeria, I guess. Uh, it depends on where they move to. Like, um, most people move to, like, uh, Atlanta. Oh. That kind of thing. Or if you move to the South, it would be a different experience. But there are two sides of the coin, right? So you have some people um, who move here and say, oh, wow, you know, Black people are really homely. 
Um, they stick together. You know, I remember the first time I went to a black church and, you know, the pastor was like, everyone knew the pastor came out, came to the audience and like shook hands and everyone was hugging, uh, which is a different experience from what I have, you know, looking at the pastor up there like a demigod kind of thing. <laughs> so that's, that's one aspect. Um, some people, it depends on where they move to also look, uh, tend to misunderstand the black experience. Um, honestly, looking at, African-Americans as, as not doing enough to liberate themselves from their current situation. So we also have that school of thought. So it's both ways, right? Uh, and again, it depends on where you move to. You move to places like Atlanta, I think, so there's a lot of Black uh, excellence people try. But again, like I said, you know, you can't really uh, make up for, what, what was it, a uh, uh, hundred and some years of, of, of slavery in 400. 400 years of slavery, a couple. I mean, your great grandmother was uh, a sharecropper, as as you were. As you were oh, my grandmother was a sharecropper. Yeah. Oh, your grandmother was, was a sharecropper, as you were saying. I mean, that's just you know two generations removed, and we grew up in a place of you know everyone looks alike and everything. So when we come here, and some people tend to attribute like the black experience to like, oh, you know, this is uh, what low self-esteem, you know, you guys can do a lot. But I do see the African-American community, like, doing a lot to, like, um, challenge the system. Obviously, what things have happened since 1956 up until now, it's just been, you know, what, 60-something years, and a lot of things have happened. So uh, I just think that we need to work together more, uh, the immigrants and the African-American population, because the way I look at it, like, African-Americans are what, like 12, 13, 14% of the U.S. So that's like the minority. So, you know, it, it, if, if we have divisions within the minority, then it doesn't help anyone. You know, there are ways uh, we can work together. Uh, and it's the flip side to, you know, living home in Nigeria, you see tourists who come from the U.S. and they look at us, you know, some kind of way also. We also have that experience. So there's a good and bad side. To, to both uh, aspects of it. But again, you know, having those conversations, um, me reaching out to you now, uh, hopefully if there's any event you're having for Franklin Foundation, you can invite me over. I can get to meet your friends, things like that. You can attend Nigerian churches, eat some more jollof fries, that kind of thing. Yeah. And eventually we can, you know, chat out this plan because, you know, t- t- together we stand, man. Like divided, yeah. we're always going to fall. So there's yeah. not, it's not worth like bickering over even though you're always going to have a group of people that go this way and a group of people that go that way. Uh, But it's left to people like us to just uh, forge ahead and uh, and make things happen. Right. That was a really good answer. And it segues into my last question. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've noticed this since I moved out here. Mm -hmm. Um, Growing up with Africans um, from all over, um, from Nigeria, Ghana, and then even North Africa, um, I kind of just, maybe not North Africans, but definitely West Africans. We all, I look at all of them as Black, same with Dominicans, Jamaicans. Um, we all, it was just very bad, especially with the KKK, as prevalent as it is in South Carolina, to try to separate yourself into different categories, because then mm. you don't want to be a super minority. Mm. Um, so it's like everybody's kind of just Black. Like, we definitely celebrated everybody's culture, but we all kind of looked at each other as Black. Probably Wait, is the KKK response. still a thing? Down yes. South? Like, yeah, so when I say still a thing, like, they... Well, I guess that makes sense, because I think in Charlottesville, a lot, a bunch of stuff... I grew up seeing Blood members fight the KKK members um, at the Capitol, really? and they still have a fight on YouTube. So, yeah, yeah, it was very thing, and I can't even remember, like, being in middle school and working at the middle school, and them saying there was a Black boy, and they put a noose around his neck. Um, and that's why you always want to travel in numbers. So mm-hmm. when I look at it now, like, you know, when I think about businesses we support and you asked me to like about black businesses, it was like, I didn't necessarily think of like, oh, I'm supporting African business or I'm supporting a black business. Like mm-hmm. my mom had Africans who were black there. She had Dominicans who were black, Jamaicans who were black. Af- um, my name is Haitian. So Haitians who were black there too. Um, but now that I get here, it is kind of like, you know, like there's black and then there's African-American and then there's Caribbean. And I want to know like why that is such a thing here, because I just see it like we make more money together. Um, what do you mean here at Denver? Mm-hmm. And just like as I move across the United States, because like I said, South Carolina is such a small population. Mm-hmm. You're not going to want to separate yourself. But 
once I guess you get into bigger pockets, people do separate themselves. So I just don't really see any purpose in it. Like it's financially, it, it's bad for all of us. And even when you think about community rights, it's bad for all of us. Because like you said, we're stronger together. We're stronger together. I mean, I, I don't have a perfect answer for that. I've lived in Denver for what, uh, six months now, seven months. So not a long time, under a year. Um, and even, you know, the rest of the U.S. But if I were to guess, I'll, I'll probably say it has something to do with trust. Um, mm. And, you know, people might make arguments on either side. Like, hey, you know, uh, immigrants don't trust anyone. Uh, some people might say African-Americans don't trust anyone. Um, but it has to do with trust. Like, how willing are you to leave your comfort zone and open yourself up to experience uh, a different culture that's not your own? Um, do you just um, see someone walking down the street who's uh, an immigrant? Are you like, oh, a booty scratcher kind of thing? Or you see someone walking down the street, a person is African-American, and you, you know, say one stereotype of an African-American. You know, those things keep both communities separate. Yeah. Continue to feed on the distrust between both communities. So there has to be a level of trust. You know, it's just like being in a relationship. You have to break down your defenses and give the other person opportunities to come in or you go to the other person. So, so far, those communities keep being, you know, divided. You know, you have the African day, then you have the African-American day separately onto or in, in two different parks or whatever. So if I were to guess, I'll say that that that's what it is. Unfortunately, trust is not really something we can we quantify can or begin to attack or, you know, make sense of because it's, it's something, you know, that's very, very up in the air, right? What is trust? I guess what we can do is just to try to expose ourselves to the experiences of others so we can just better understand where they're coming from. Even though if we don't understand it 100%, we can get to understand where they are coming from. And, you know, that in a sense, hopefully over one or two generations can uh, make things a little better. Yeah, I, I, I really pray so, because I feel like that's the answer to everything in the world is all these different Black nations coming together. Is it offensive to call Africans? Or would you do you find it offensive when people call you Black? No, I am Black, for Christ's sake. Okay. Look at my skin. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. my cocoa butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, and you know, that's how I look at it like race. That's why I would say race and ethnicity. And I feel like we all kind of need to look at our race and be like, look, we yeah. all are kind of struggling because of how we've been done by people of other races. Yeah. So we probably need to put our money together and like. Yeah. Plus, you can't also discount the fact that we have actors who are deliberately trying to keep us apart. Uh, yes, and that has always as, been. Yeah, in as much as you know, we do our own bit to contribute into the disunity. Like we have actors out there who they've done this in African countries, even where I'm from. Like parts of the country, they say, "Oh, this is the north. This is the south." They yeah. tell the north one thing, and you know, they cause civil wars and they cause these divisions. And they sit down in Berlin somewhere and draw the African map, the Berlin Conference, you know, things like that. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's bad enough. You know, we can only. Um, be cognizant and fight against like external influence if we are together ourselves. So we can't even afford to, you know, continue this disunity because we have bigger fish to fry, uh, you know, in a sense. And that's the scary thing about it is that we have trusted, we've trusted Europeans before over our land and over our country, but we won't trust each other. Um, And I think that's the part that we really have to just deal with as Black people because we've seen it, like, even when you look at, like, the Rwanda situation, what happened with Uganda and Belgium, playing into that. Um, It's going to keep running the same game. What they're doing to, like, Uganda and Rwanda is the same thing they're doing to Chicago and Oakland. And if you think it's different, um, I hate to tell you, but it's not. Wait, what's going on in Oakland? Um, just anything, like, I just look at it, I guess I'm studying social work and I'm studying it from a global aspect. And when you look at the way, like, Oakland has been given all this firearms, um, same with Chicago has been given all these firearms, lack of education, lack of support, but we'll give you firearms to feel each other. And then if you go look at Rwanda or you go look at Uganda or you go look at some places that like a civil war, you're seeing the same thing. So you're asking yourself, where are they getting all these weapons from? Well, they're all being supplied from the same place. Who yeah. are they trying to get you to harm and hurt? So what's happening in Chicago is the same thing, in my opinion, that's happening. Like, maybe not in the same exact way, but they're yeah. definitely using the same strategy abroad. And it's happening in Jamaica and Haiti and everywhere else, too. 
And that's why it's just so important for us to like, even if we're not going to like each other to work together and to understand that like, we're so much stronger than we are together because people have made so much money in the past separating us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, this boils down, also boils down to, you know, keeping the dollar uh, within the community, you know, things like that to, to just, you know, help each other out. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be a handout. You know, we can be professional about it. Well, uh, but uh, there, there are ways to lift our, our communities up uh, economically uh, the right way. Most definitely. And I think one thing that I've noticed working for white organizations now is they're not afraid to give each other handouts because they know that handout is going to lead to something. Like if I hand you $5 and you flip that $5 turn well, it into 10, then you make money for our community. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm sorry to cut you short. It's just like, you know, Africans, sometimes we, we <laughs> you know, we, know. We, we've lived on years and years of aid. So sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, the whole handout or aid thing, it's, it's a little... Uh, we, we start to, yeah, we start to say, well, what's your real plan? You know, what, what's your and plan? I guess that's why I really want the Franklin Foundation to be international. So I was like, look, this is the money we're giving you. It's not the International World Bank. Don't pay it back. Like, this is what we're, this is what we as the Black community raise internationally. This is what's going to this community. And that's kind of how taxes have been set up to help other communities, like, thrive so hard. Um <laughs> So yeah, and that's it too, because you're right. None of us are gonna want to take it, um, especially considering the hand we've been dealt already. So yeah, once again, that trust issue comes back around. Yeah, trust, man, trust. It's uh, such a simple word, but it's very complicated, uh, very complicated right. concept. But hey, we'll figure it out. Um, especially now, like um, your 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 grandma uh, walked, your your mom ran. So we have to fly, man. You you have to become governor or president. Like Gar- Garcelle will sell. Oh, that's, what was that? What was the slogan? <laughs> let's just go Garcelle for now, and let's I'm just sorry. like hope that my foundation can just provide resources, so I don't have to like be political about it. I can just go like, this is the resource, have it or not. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, you I don't want to have to be, vote. You have to be political at some point, but <laughs> but yeah, you want to. Uh, so you guys should visit. Uh, was it? franklinfoundation.org or the com. Yeah, so you can find us at um, the franklinfoundation.org um, and we are going to start taking donations now. So in April, we're going to start taking donations for our foundation. As of March, um, all of our donations for the year have actually gone towards getting people clean water um, in Denmark, South Carolina. So we'll be taking donations. And this donations. is Denmark, South Carolina, not you. South Carolina, yes. Okay. Denmark, South Carolina. Got it. All right. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a really insightful conversation, and I'm glad we're, we had the chance to do this. Uh, since both of us are in the same city, uh, I really urge us to stay connected. I would definitely stay connected, check in on the foundation from time to time. Uh, for our listeners, you can, as always, follow Culture Class Podcast. Uh, it's Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Uh, Twitter is Culture Class Pod. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what you think. And if you want to contribute to this conversation, hit us up on Twitter and we'll let it rip. All right, guys. Have a great day.